What's up, everybody? Great to see you guys. Thanks for being at the crossing today. It's always an honor to be with you guys. I want to welcome our Southeast campus and those of you that might be joining us online as well. I can see from a bunch of jerseys here today, the NFL is kicking off their season today. So who you got? Who's your team? Who you, who you got? Yeah, my, my, my team, the Packers, uh, play today, and I got it recording at home. And as the NFL kind of unleashes their season, we're wrapping up this series that we've been calling Unleashed. We've been talking about uh, the church just be, becoming all that God dreams about us uh, becoming, talking about becoming the t- kind of people that pray and we talk to God all the time and we depend upon his strength and, and his wisdom and his direction all throughout the day. We've been talking about becoming people who are compassionate and generous with our time and, and, and our resources, people who care deeply about the next generation and people who are doing it all in the context of healthy, authentic uh, community. And Shane has been sharing some great stuff in this series. So if you missed any of it, uh, make sure you get online and, and check it out. And today, I want to wrap this all up by asking this question. How do we get here? Well, you're thinking, well, bro, I backed out of my driveway and I turned right and I took three lefts and I made it in the, the crossing, right? Well, there's a lot of different roads and streets and freeways that we all take to arrive at the same place. And spiritually speaking, we've taken a bunch of different roads and a bunch of different detours to get to the same place, yet we're here together, a bunch of profoundly imperfect people being profoundly impacted by the good news of Jesus Christ. And I look around our world and I see so many people who are just living beneath their privilege, their privilege of knowing and walking with the one who made them to know him and walk with him. I see so many people drowning in addiction, so many people beaten down with feelings of worthlessness and they're overwhelmed by guilt and shame. So many people paralyzed by fear, being eaten alive by bitterness and resentment. So many people who are caught in that unhealthy comparison trap and living with envy and living without any real purpose or meaning in their life. And gang, all that describes how I used to be. And that's why I want to spend my days for the rest of my life just unleashing the good news of God's grace and love, just helping people find and follow Jesus, the one who brings freedom and forgiveness and worth and security and purpose and passion and hope and real life. And you guys need to know this, this hope I'm talking about, this grace, this good news, this fresh start, it's for everybody. Prostitutes and preschool teachers, punks and preppies, pediatricians and plumbers, Pharisees and pharmacists, presidents and pastors, we are all in need of God's grace, and we all need some good news, and that's why we as the church desperately need to help people find and follow Jesus so they can have this good news in their own life. That's what the early church did. They made it their mission to help people find and follow Jesus because they were so impacted by the amazing grace of God for their own life because they were so grateful for a do-over, so grateful for a fresh start. They just unleashed the good news in their city. They went wherever God asked them to go. They did whatever God asked them to do. They took enormous risks. They sacrificially gave them themselves, some of them even giving the supreme sacrifice of their life. Now, of course, Jesus is the reason that we're here. But the church exists today Because all kinds of passionate, brave people 
picked up the cross of Jesus Christ, denied themselves, and really followed him. So I want to go back to that question. How do we get here? How do we get here? I want to do something a little bit different today. I'm kind of taking a risk. I want to try to take you on a 15-minute journey that actually took me four semesters of seminary. We're going to fly through this. Tonight, I'll probably go home and watch ESPN recap all the NFL games. That's the best way to watch games. 15 minutes and you're done with all of them, which is great. I just want to do a really, really quick history timeline of the church. Now, this is certainly not all exhaustive or all inclusive of important events and significant people. Just a few highlights to point to the question, how did we get here? Would you guys be up for that journey? You okay? Would you, would you hang with me through that? I'll try not to bore you, I promise. I might, but I'll try. And we're going we're gonna to fly through this, so fasten your seatbelt. Please bring your tray table and your seat back to its lump up, whatever they say. And here we go. In 33 A.D., about 50 days after the death and resurrection of Jesus, about 120 of his followers uh, gathered there in Jerusalem. They were led by guys like Peter and John, who were members of Jesus' small group. They headed to the streets of Jerusalem, and empowered by the Holy Spirit, Peter, this former fisherman, think deadliest catch kind of guy, rough guy, never preached a sermon in his entire life. He stands up and he declares, hey, good news for everybody. There is hope for everyone. And he tells the crowd there they need to repent and turn toward God and be baptized. And guess what? They respond. And at least 3,000 are baptized that day and added to this brand new thing called the church. Now, the word church actually comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which simply means an assembly or, or, or a gathering. The followers of Jesus were called disciples, which means just students or followers of. They were later called Christians or Christianos which means little Christ. It was actually a demeaning term attached to them to make fun of them for their belief in only one true God. One of the things I love about the beginning years of this thing called the church, the ecclesia, this gathering of Jesus' followers, is how united it was. I think Shane showed this scripture last weekend. Let's take a look at it again. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayer, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They even sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They hung out together, breaking bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And as a result, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's just a great picture. This group, were just, they were one in heart, one in mind, one in mission. They really, really cared about their city. They really, really cared about their friends. They really, really cared about their family. They just wanted to unleash the good news and help people just find and follow Jesus, this one who had changed their life. And as a result, this humble, united, me too kind of place where anybody could show up, it grew like crazy in the city of Jerusalem. So here's this young church just making a huge difference there in the city. They're figuring out ways to continue Jesus' ministry to the poor because it was a high value of Jesus. And uh, this young guy named Stephen, who was one of the guys put in charge of the church's like compassion fund, their benevolence ministry, he gets dragged out into the streets one day. And after this passionate and very honest defense of his faith, 
the religious extremists stone Stephen to death. He's killed for his goodness and his belief in Jesus Christ. And now this young church is facing serious persecution, just like Jesus promised they would. And they began to scatter. See, right before Jesus left, he told them, go, I want you to be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And after the stoning of Stephen, they began to move out of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and eventually the ends of the earth. For instance, in Acts chapter 8, you can read all about it. We'll see one of of Jesus' followers, this dude named Philip. He's in a place where most people would never, ever go. Most Jews wouldn't touch Samaria with a 10-foot pole. There's a really cool story about this encounter that he has with this guy from Ethiopia who's baptized right in the middle of nowhere and how the ripple effect of, of grace begins to spread now even internationally. In 36 AD or, or so, one of the chief persecutors of the church was this man known as Saul of Tarsus. You ever heard of him? He's one of the guys responsible for the execution of Stephen. Well, he encounters the resurrected Jesus. You can read all about that in Acts chapter 9. And this guy's life is radically changed. His mission is radically changed. Even they change his name to the Apostle Paul. A lot of the book of Acts is all about Paul's journey, how he impacted the ancient world wherever he went. And in 42 AD, Mark, one of Jesus' followers, goes to Egypt with the good news. In 49 AD, Paul goes to Turkey. In 51 AD, Paul goes to Greece. 52, a guy named Thomas, remember him, the guy that doubted the resurrection of Jesus? He takes the good news to India. In 60 AD, Paul's journeys end in Rome. He eventually ends up in a Roman prison for his faith. And he writes most of the back half of the New Testament from that prison cell. He writes to encourage all these churches that he and other people had planted all over the place. Now, the church wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination because it was full of people like us, right? But it was thriving, and it was making a huge difference in their world. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was Charles Dickens who said, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, right? And that was certainly true for the early church. On June 18th, 64 AD, a terrible fire breaks out in the city of Rome. Rome was and still is one of the most magnificent cities the world's ever constructed or seen. And sadly, the fire raged for six days, destroying 10 of the 16 districts in the city of Rome. The Roman emperor at the time was a guy named Nero. Have you heard of him? Very very sick and sadistic man. Uh, Many people in the area believed that Nero actually had the fire set because he, he didn't like the way the city was laid out. He had plans of building an even more opulent city for his own pleasure. Well, that rumor started to leak. That truth actually started to leak. And it spread faster than the fires, and Nero found himself in the hot seat, so to speak, and needing to shift the blame to somebody else. So guess who he shifted the blame to? He turned his anger toward the Christians and spread the rumor that it was them who had set the fire. And as a result, it got horrible for the followers of Jesus. Historian Tacitus describes the scene this way. Before killing the Christians, Nero used them to amuse the people. Some were dressed in furs to be killed by dogs. Others were crucified. Still others were set on fire early in the night so they might illumine it. Nero opened his own gardens for these shows. In the circus, he himself became a spectacle, for he had mingled with the people dressed as a charioteer. And even though Nero felt like he had turned the tide of public opinion, it actually had the opposite effect on those who lived within the city limits of Rome. Tacitus goes on to write, All of this aroused the mercy of the people 
even against the culprits, the Christians. For it was clear they were not being destroyed for the common good, but rather to satisfy the cruelty of one person. The cruelty of that one person, Nero, didn't stop after he died. It even escalated under emperors Vespasian, uh, Domitian. You see, the Romans worshipped multiple pagan gods, little g-gods. So if anything ever bad happened to a Roman leader or to their city, they believed it was because one of their gods wasn't being worshipped enough. And again, who wasn't worshipping the Roman gods? These Jesus followers, those Christianos, those one God worshipers. Ancient historian Tertullian describes the blame game this way. He said, if the Tiber River floods the city, or the Nile River refuses to rise, or if the sky withholds its rain, or if there is an earthquake, a famine, a pestilence, at once the cry is raised, Christians to the lions. It was horrible. Peter would be crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. John, one of Jesus' closest friends, was dipped in hot oil, miraculously survived that and was banished to an awful place called the Isle of Patmos. His brother James was clubbed to death. Bartholomew was filleted alive. If you ever get a chance to visit Rome, there's a, there's a church there, St. John's Basilica, that has 12 statues, each depicting how the disciples were killed for their faith. And the statue of Bartholomew depicts him holding his own skin. It was awful. And guess how the Christians fought back? Yeah, they counteracted that cruelty with compassion. There was a man named Aristides who worked for the Emperor Julian. And he gave this report, and this is one of the most touching pieces of history I think I've ever read. He gave this report about the lifestyle of these Christians, and this is what he told the emperor. They do not keep for themselves the goods entrusted to them. They do not covet what belongs to others. They show love to their neighbors. They do not do to another what they would not have done to themselves. They speak gently to those who oppress them. And in this way, they make them their friends. It's become their passion to do good to their enemies. They live in the awareness of their smallness. Every one of them who has anything gives ungrudgingly to the one who has nothing. If they see a traveling stranger, they bring him under their roof. They rejoice over him as over a real brother, for they don't call one another brothers after the flesh, but they know they are brothers in God. If they hear that one of them is imprisoned or oppressed for the sake of Christ, they take care of all of his needs. If anyone among them is poor or comes into want, while they themselves have nothing to spare, they fast two or three days for him. In this way, they can supply any poor man with the food he needs. This, O emperor, is the rule of life of the Christians, and this is their manner of life. Wouldn't that be an awesome description of the crossing? So it was this combination of cruelty and compassion that actually caused the church to grow and thrive in its first 300 years of existence. Again, I would say it was the worst of times for the church, but strangely it turned out to be the best of times. Christians are forced to scatter once again, and the churches that were started by Paul and others begin to send these church planters out with the good news to not only Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, but now they really are reaching the ends of the earth, the known world at that time. For instance, in, in, in A.D. 174, the first Christians are reported in Austria. 
In 280 AD, the first rural churches emerge in northern Italy, and for the first time, Christianity is not strictly urbanized. By October 312 AD, Constantine becomes the emperor of Rome and declares himself to be the first, quote-unquote, Christian emperor. Now, if you read Roman history, it becomes clear that Constantine converted not because of his love and devotion for Jesus Christ, but because Christianity seemed like the best religion with which to govern the empire. So in 313, Constantine issued what was called the Edict of Milan, putting an official end to the persecution of the church. And now, politically, a season of favor flowed to the Christians because they now had friends in like high places. And Constantine gave them back all the land that the other emperors had confiscated from them. Christians were exempt from serving in the military. They were given tax cuts. So by 314 AD, 90% of the population quickly became Christians. Anybody see a potential problem in this? Hmm, let me see. You get land, you get tax cuts, you don't have to serve in the military, you get a nice state job. Oh, why, sure. I'm a follower of, what was his name? Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, I'm a follower of him. So people join the church because of the fringe benefits. Where in the previous 300 years, you did not join the community of Jesus unless you were willing to give your life for him. Persecution, as awful as it was, is what kept the church so strong and so pure. So politically speaking, it was the best of times for the church. But spiritually speaking, it quickly became the worst of times for the church. Instead of serving other people, instead of having an outward focus, instead of selflessly unleashing the good news of God's love and forgiveness to their friends, instead of helping people find and follow Jesus, instead of sacrificing for each other, instead of serving the least of these as Jesus told them to, the church slowly became this political, powerful machine bent on financial gain, the legislation of morality, and military conquest. And that kind of corruption would tragically spread for the next over 1,000 years. This period has been called the Dark Ages for a number of reasons. But one thing that took people further and further into the dark and away from Jesus was not only the spirit of the church, but universal illiteracy. I mean, few could read, and there were even fewer books to read, including the Bible. And the Bible had been translated from Hebrew and Greek, the original language, into Latin, an uncommon language that only the upper class could, could actually read. So to keep the stories of the Bible alive, the church used stained glass images and statues and other icons and images to communicate. So instead of really knowing the story, instead of really knowing the teachings of Jesus, people started to pray to these icons and even started worshiping some of the images. And it didn't stop there. This elaborate system of like bishops and institutional hierarchy and governing church structures took shape in different regions of the world. And by the 600s, there was a consolidation of all church power and all church governance in this holy city called Rome. I can remember sitting in class with my mouth wide open as my professor, Charles Mills, told us about the selling of what was called indulgences. You guys ever heard of this? They were kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card. Like, if you're planning on having a wild weekend, you could go to the church ahead of time and buy an indulgence, kind of a prepayment for your sin. And the wilder the weekend, the more it would cost you for your indulgence. Or you could pick one up after the fact, but they were more expensive. It blew me away that many of these massive cathedrals 
that dot the landscape in the, in the continent of Europe were built with these funds that came from forcing poor people to pay the church for the forgiveness of their sins. I mean, things were so corrupt in the church that when you looked at it, the last thing you saw was the pure and holy bride of Christ that we read about in the book of Acts and early church history. It was dirty, it was deceitful, it was arrogant, it was ugly, and it was tragically corrupt. But do you remember what Jesus said? He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So in spite of all this mess, in spite of all the corruption, as he always has, God used a remnant just a faithful few, some very faithful unsung heroes who were committed to carrying the torch of truth and Jesus' real teachings. For instance, there was a country called Ireland that remained unreached by the love of Jesus. It was steeped in witchcraft and druids and all kinds of pagan practices. In AD 400, a young man named Patrick was taken captive and sold into slavery to a group from Ireland. And he would spend the remaining 30 years of his life helping people get free from their superstitions and mystic beliefs and found faith in Jesus Christ. We know him today as St. Patrick. And we celebrate him by wearing green and getting smashed, actually. (laughs) But historians believe that if it wasn't for the Celtic countries, that the flame of Christianity would have burned out long ago in Europe. You see, even in the darkest of hours and years and eras and ages, God uses bright lights like a slave named Patrick to pick up the torch and keep the flame of hope burning. In 596 AD, Gregory the Great sends Augustine and a team of missionaries to England and with, with the gospel, and those missionaries go to Canterbury, and within two years, over 2,000 converts to, to Christianity. In 635 A.D., the first Christian missionaries arrive in China. In 740 A.D., Irish monks reach Iceland. In 900 A.D., Christian missionaries reach Norway. In the mid-1300s, a man by the name of John Wycliffe, a respected, powerful professor at Oxford University, began articulating that the authority of the church came from the Bible and not like the other way around. And in his spare time, he translated the Bible into English so that common people could read it again. At the same time, this young German inventor by the name of Johann Gutenberg, you ever heard of this guy? He came along and figured out a way to print literature to the masses. His printing press eventually led people out of the darkness of illiteracy and into the light of knowledge. And in 1455, the very first book that Gutenberg printed was the Word of God which meant that it could not only be printed with relative ease, but now it could be circulated, which meant now it could also be read and taught again. I mean, how much do we owe that guy? Around the same time, a man by the name of John Huss, he started teaching from the Bible. And he encouraged other pastors to do the same, and he built a church, a church like the crossing, a me-too kind of place where screwed up people, messed up people could just come, a place where common people could just come and learn about Jesus. At the same time, he spoke out about all this awful church corruption. And as a result, Huss was burned at the stake for his actions. But Huss's fire became a bonfire when a young priest, October 31st, 1517, by the name of Martin Luther, you might have heard of him, 
He nailed a piece of paper to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church and the paper were 95 reasons why the church desperately needed to rethink itself, why the church needed to be reformed. And others began to challenge many of the teachings and the corrupt practices that were going on in the church that had been birthed during the years when the Bible wasn't being taught or read. And at the center of it was this fresh rediscovery that salvation comes by grace, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in Jesus Christ would be saved and live forever. And that moment took, that movement took Europe by storm, and it was dubbed the Protestant or the Protestant. Protesters Reformation. In 1521, Martin Luther stood before a tribunal of church leaders who demanded he recant those 95 declarations of reform he had nailed to the door or be burned at the stake. He asked for 24 hours to pray. They granted that, and he came back the next day, and this is what he said. Unless I am convicted of error by the testimony of Scripture, I stand convicted by the Scriptures to which I have appealed. And my conscience is taken captive to God's word, and I cannot and I will not recount anything. For to act against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. So on this I take my stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. And from that point forward, fueled by his courage, new churches like the first church in Acts chapter 2 were birthed all across Europe. In 1620, some of you students will know what 1620 is, the significance of that. A community of Christ followers from England set sail across the Atlantic Ocean to find a land where they could worship God in freedom, away from the rule of a king, a rule from all the hierarchy and corruption of the state church. Forty-one of them survived their first year in this new land in Plymouth Harbor, and they wrote what was called the Mayflower Compact, which stated that their purpose was to bring glory to God and advance the cause of Christ and His kingdom here on earth. That's why they came. They simply said, we're here to help people find and follow Jesus. And thousands more soon followed suit. And they left Europe and they came to the new land, many to start Bible colleges, such as, catch this, Yale University. Did you know that Yale was originally a missionary training institution? And men like Jonathan Edwards preached powerfully. They traveled all over this new land planting churches. Historians refer to this healthy time of revival as the Great Awakening as preachers like Edwards and George Whitfield took the gospel to as much as 80% of the colonists, the good news was spreading like wildfire across this new place called America. Now, unfortunately, it didn't take long for human nature and pride to once again rear its ugly head and splinter the church. And this Protestant church began to split into what we call today denominations. Disagreements arose over small theological issues. Didn't take long for the church to become something other than what we see in the book of Acts, which was united. And after a period of arguing and each denomination kind of building its own airtight theology, we're right. A group of preachers finally got together and said, okay, enough of this. Guys like Charles Spurgeon, uh, D.L. Moody, uh, men like Barton Stone, uh, Thomas Campbell, Alexander Campbell. They were among some of the first to call for reform again. They wanted to restore the church back to its first century roots. And so Methodists and Baptists and Lutherans and Presbyterians and other preachers began to come together and began to say things like, okay, no creed but Christ. No, no book but the Bible. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, love. 
They begin to say, we're not the only Christians, but we're just going to be Christians only. And out of that movement, a little church began in Las Vegas, Nevada. It was called Central Christian Church. And they began to think outside their walls. And they became passionate about unleashing the good news in the Vegas Valley. So much so that in 1992, they decided to plant a new like-minded church on the northwest side of the Vegas Valley. And they called this young, incredibly handsome guy from Kentucky to lead it. And... Uh, <laughs> This new church plant began meeting at the Las Vegas YMCA. They used racquetball courts for kids' classrooms. They had Olympic-sized baptistry. They called themselves Canyon Ridge. And they took that name in part because they were passionate about talking people off the edge of the canyon of hopelessness. And then in 1994, this growing church called a student ministry guy to join the team. And he had this beautiful young family. And at that time, he was not trying to hide the fact he was balding. Uh, his, name, his name was Shane. And he decided to launch out in a few years with a great team of like-minded people to lead a movement that would be known as The Crossing, a place that would become known all over for unleashing the good news of helping people find and follow Jesus. And that is how we got here. Now, thanks, thanks for tracking with me all through that stuff. I just did it to say, we're standing on the shoulders of brave and visionary men and women who for 2,000 years embraced the good news in their life, and they just want to unleash it in their world. People who had discovered a living hope, and they loved their friends, they loved their family, they loved their city enough that they were willing to take risks to make sure that others found this new life too. Some even gave their life for it. It was their all-consuming passion to take this good news to everybody. And gang, here we are today. We're still writing history. We're still dispensing hope. And I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful to just be a little blip on the timeline of God's epic story. And we've only just begun. You guys were given a card today. It looks like this. On the back of the card, there's, there's five lines gives you space to write down the name of five people that just might benefit from knowing the good news of Jesus Christ. People you know. We want to encourage you to write their names on this card and then put this card somewhere where just you can see it so you can remember to pray every day for these five people. This will be your five. And that those five can, can, can rotate down, down the road. But just put this card somewhere where you can pray and just ask God to intervene in their life. You might ask God to soften their heart. They might ask God to give you a heart for them, to keep you sensitive to opportunities where you can say a word or you can just listen or you can help or you can express love to them and then make an invite to church because you know this is a safe place for anybody to show up with doubts and questions and baggage and mess, whatever. Just make the invite. Most people will come if you just make an invite. So just put five people on this card. Put it somewhere where you can pray for them every single day and just see what God might do. You see, the church is not something you just come to. It's something we are. It's something we are. Like Shane and Lee and the rest of the leadership team, when I think about the crossing, I think about two churches. I think about the church that we are and the church that we could become. You see, this church, this dream, this has been in my heart for 25 years. I love this place. I love you all, and there are so many good people in this place, and there are so many good things going on through this church, 
But there is so much more potential for incredible good in and through all of us for years to come. That's why sometimes I just dream. I just dream of what I call a dangerous church. And I say the word dangerous in the best of terms. When I talk about dangerous church, I'm talking about a church that just keeps pushing back the darkness in the city and bringing hope and light. I actually pray that the crime rate would come down because people like you are dispensing grace and hope. That thousands of people far from God are beginning to find and follow Jesus and their life just gets turned upside down. I dream of a church that replicates itself like all over the Vegas Valley with other campuses or wherever God leads the crossing. I dream of a church where resources just flow like a river and they're managed wisely and strategically just to advance the kingdom of God and help other people around the world. I dream of a church that provides food and shelter and clothing and furniture maybe for unresourced people, a church that assists in disaster relief efforts, a church that's get, that get in, gets involved with kids, maybe through after-school programs and you know, life skills and mentoring and job training, help with budgeting and finances, a church that continues to help people find hope and healing from addictions and habits and hurts and hang-ups. And I love the fact that there are small groups. It's going to be cool the next week that all starts working on the John Ortberg study guide of all the places you'll go. It's going to be so cool. I love that there are groups that do that and they study a study guide, they get into the Bible, they dig into scripture and they go deeper together. It's so important to do that. But I also think it'd be cool to see every small group to get intentional about going out together and serving this city, to dispense some hope together. Because gang, when we start to put the truth we're learning into action, that's when we really start growing. Because when you live like Jesus, you start to love like Jesus. And when you love like Jesus, that's what's super attractive. You start looking like him. It would be amazing for some groups to say, yeah, you know what? We put the study down like once a month and we just go to a different nursing home and love on some lonely people. Or maybe a group of college-age students say, you know what, most Monday nights, you can find us in some of the neighborhoods of greatest need in our city. We just go door to door. We just ask people, is there any way I could serve you today? Or maybe a group of high school students who volunteer to read books for preschool kids that maybe are kind of at risk, or maybe some empty nesters who jump in with that and partner with some city schools to mentor some at-risk kids, helping them with their homework or coaching soccer teams or taking them to a Raiders game or taking them out to pizza or families that just open their homes and become a safe family to, to house a child during a crisis situation. I mean, I dream of a church like that. I dream of a dangerous church, one that courageously floods this valley with hope, one that unleashes the good news of Jesus Christ. And when I dream, it makes me wonder, what if... What if, what if we, the church, all of us began to live a little dangerous, came out from hiding behind the brush and allowed God to light a flame in us? What if, what if we began a revolution, didn't back down from persecution, became part of the solution, got in the business of the distribution of love, grace, and hope? What if? What if we knew what God said? Let his word wrap around our heart, our head, more than just words on a page collecting dust unread. Instead, like this book is alive and not dead. What if? What if our families were thriving? A place of peace, no depriving, no striving, more than just surviving, but rising up to give, serve, invest, care, guide, set aside our pride, decide to abide, to stay beside a place where children confide and hope presides. What if? What if you're 12 
or 16 or 20 and live with a courage unlike so many, possess valor, boldness, and faith plenty. Let God write your story from the very beginning. Hand him your record and let him start spinning. All the some days I'll be are phony and fleeting. You are worthy now and your life now has meaning. What if? What if we unleash compassion? Flung our faith into action, opened our hands, our home, our wallet, our door to the lonely, the outcast, the hurting, the poor. Gave to our neighbors and didn't keep score. Humbled ourselves so someone else could soar. What if? What if our what ifs, more than, more than just words that we say, more than a game we play, what if we didn't stray or sway or live our lives in shades of gray? What if instead the day we pray, God, make this our DNA? I think we'd be dangerous. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, so, so grateful uh, for men and women who have gone before us, people who were so captured by your amazing grace, people that were so infected by the good news of forgiveness and freedom and heaven that they just made an incredible difference in this world and we're so grateful to be standing on their shoulders and God we do not want that torch to drop with us we want to be a dangerous church one that unleashes compassion and love and grace and we do it in community and we care about the next generation but we're just people that we're obsessed with making sure our friends and our family and our city get, to get in on the good news. God, I pray that you would use us this week. I pray that the five people we wrote down, God, would feel the impact of our prayers, and the impact of our love, and the impact of your love and your calling on their life. God, I pray that many in this valley would begin to live within their privilege and knowing the, cre the, the living God, the one who created them to do life with them, the one who longs just to, to have an authentic relationship with them. God, I pray that all happens. And I pray it happens through us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And all who agreed said, amen. amen. Hey, thanks for being here this weekend, guys. Have a great week. See you later.